My guest today on the Reset Podcast is clinical psychotherapist Mark Butler. Mark is on a mission to change the way people look at things like mental health and addiction and really wants to take away the stigma associated with these two things. He has some great insights into how to deal with people in your tribe when they're struggling with some of this stuff and I think you're going to enjoy it. Welcome, Mark Butler. Okay, welcome to the Reset Podcast. We've got Mark Butler. Mark. Hi, Luke. How are you doing? Is it good being me? Yeah, I think it's good being me. Um, Yeah, um, there's nothing that comes up, as you say, that that I think is bad about being me that I can think of, that I'd tell you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is good. It is good. It is good being me. I'm, I'm centered, I'm focused, I'm alive, I'm grateful. Uh, yeah, it's good. They're, they're three pretty important things, aren't they? Yeah, I, look, I think so. Yeah, I think so. So what we're going to talk, to, talk about today, Mark's a, a clinical psychologist mm-hmm. and he's dealt with lots and lots of people over the journey about addiction and she's got some fantastic insights into addiction and, and how we can change the way we look at it. Numb. Yeah, I might throw yeah. it over you, Mark, and, and tell us about, about some of the stuff you do and and um, your view on addiction that might be different from perhaps other people that are, that are listening today. Sure. Oh, look, um, the, the language around uh, addictive processes and, and behaviours uh, has changed a lot in recent years. Uh, I think it mostly falls down to the media's responsibility uh, and we're starting to see a bit of a shift uh, I'd like to see it happen a bit quicker in how we refer to people who may be living with a substance use issue um, or or a behavior issue like gambling, which has become very much in the forefront of the news just in recent times because of lockdown, etc. Um, I'll segue on to gambling. I might as well just quickly uh, talk about that for a few seconds. What we've noticed just in the last, we'll say, six weeks, um, since lockdown, uh, we, we've noticed that there's nearly one and a half billion dollars that would have been spent on poker machines and other forms of gambling. Um, just in Australia? Just in Australia has not been spent. Wow. Isn't that amazing? One and, one and, and a half, half billion. billion dollars. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing with that is, um, so, so that means, you know, pubs and clubs and poker machines are closed, so people don't have access to them. But it, it would appear that the folks who have been using those and, and detrimentally using uh, that sort of passive gambling um, have not all resorted to other forms of gambling just to feed a, a sort of a habit. So it's interesting to notice that they have just found other ways of coping with their anxiety and stress, etc. But what has happened... So do you look at something like gambling as a, as a way, a, a distraction that helps you deal with anxiety oh, and stress in a lot of cases? Massively. In fact, in fact, all of the literature um, that uh, is used for measuring such things would would use would equate gambling uh, with um, firing the same brain systems as using a substance like alcohol or drugs. Really? So, gam- yeah, gambling fires the the domain uh, the dopamine system. Uh, which is the reward system in the brain, which is the same system that gets fired uh, whenever we need to motivate ourselves to to take an action, if you like. 
Because dop- yeah, dopamine's a great thing. It's something that keeps us focused, and we need it to to do what we need to do to stay focused on on where we're going. But if it gets hijacked so like by something like gambling, then yeah, gambling or, or or any kind of a substance abuse or look, it can be gaming, it can be porn addiction, it can be um, internet shopping, um, as well as obviously gambling and and uh, substances like alcohol or drugs and other drugs. So I mean we've wandered into the dopamine system. Let's just talk about it for a couple of seconds. Uh, It's no accident that as a species, in order to survive, we have to seek out things that will keep us alive. And in order to do that, we've evolved in such a way that we need to be rewarded for having done it. So in other words, it's, it's, it's not a, a happy coincidence that a cold drink on a hot day is so refreshing or a a nice warm fire on a cold evening, you know, to seek some shelter when it's really cold and we could be in danger. So if something feels good, we want to do it again. If something feels bad, we don't want to do it again. Exactly. That's exactly. The doing it again one is is the dopamine system, is it? Yeah, the dopamine system fires up. um, uh, We get a hit of dopamine, which is a reward for saying, hey, that was good, that kept us alive and that keeps us safe. Let's seek that out again. The problem is uh, when you use something like alcohol or another drug, which would be what we'd call psychotropic, and it, and it, uh, it manifestly changes the brain. Um, it, what, what happens there is uh, the dopamine system can be overtaken. And, and so the, 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 the system is said to the brain, hey, that was really good. I feel really safe and alive and connected after having done that. Give me more of that. Give me more of that. And then eventually it becomes its go-to response for everything. Hey, I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling anxious. Give me more of that. And that's how uh, the process actually develops. So when I say to you, an addiction begins long before a substance is taken, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, What I'm saying by that is that the dopamine system in the brain has actually started to be overtaken. Um, And that can happen very early on. I mean, try take a soother from a baby at six months of age. You know, uh, mm-hmm. kids suck their thumb as a way of soothing themselves. Um, you know, th- so so we can lock on to things that make us feel safe and make us feel okay from a very very early age. And uh, so when we talk about gambling, um, there's a great adage that says gamblers don't lose; they nearly win. Right? And, well, I've read uh, some some research on this that the amount of dopamine you get when you have a near miss. So say you're on a poker machines and you get three out of four stars come up. Yep. The amount of dopamine you get on a near miss is higher than what it is if you actually won. Is that if true? You, um, some studies might say that. It certainly is very, very close. So it's not actually about the win. It's about the process. It's right. about the excitement and it's about the taking a chance and coming out the other side of it. That's why that's called, you know, the, it's called a flutter. When you're having a, a, a gamble or a gamble, having a, a flutter is, is the, that sort of palpitation in the chest, which comes from, from excitement, mm. uh, which, which is the sort of, the, you know, the, the body reacting to the process. But um, that brings us all the way back to where we started talking about uh, the absence of pokey activity in the last six weeks. But what we're finding now is people are resorting to online gambling some people are and the problem is it's up uh online gambling is up something like 67 percent just in the last three weeks wow the big problem with that is it's younger females uh who would not traditionally be online gambling sort of customers if you like 
they'd be more casual, pokey customers. But the, and the problem with online so gambling what, is what you can now do it. They're um, trying to, yeah. What are they substituting online gambling for? For what have been otherwise? Well, I think it's it's a, it's a way of self soothing and it's a way of just coping with where they're at. Uh, we, we do know that, that uh, people are struggling with uh, anxiety, um, possibly depression. Um, in, in that, just in that short sort of lockdown period that we've been in, uh, it's affecting people. Apparently, lifeline calls are up 20%. Um, it's almost surprising that they're only up 20%. Well, that actually that doesn't measure the level of anxiety that's raised. What that tells me is that there's an awful lot of people who should be reaching out that aren't. You know, so yeah, okay. um, so if 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 online gambling's up sixty seven and Lifeline's only up twenty, <laughs> you know, there's a gap. <laughs> the there, gambling's the better option. Well, than the yeah, there's yeah, there's a bloody gap there, and and that's the problem with online gambling is you're on twenty four seven, and they are experts at getting you to gamble in things that you are on on sports or subjects that you otherwise would never have attempted or even thought about um and and uh, anecdotally i've heard it said that if you actually start to win and you're very good at it they'll shut your account so that's got to yeah. tell you something you know um so, so yeah people are just needing that sort of uh, connection and needing that hit so we just need something that makes us feel good particularly at a time when We've got a lot of uncertainty, and we've got a lot of, yeah, a lot of mental health issues out. A there lot of mental and, and and a lot of stress. I mean, you'd know that you're you're the stress Teflon guy, you know. Uh, you'd know that that that's what people are reacting to, mm. and and we don't when we lose the things that were useful to us up until now for soothing and self regulating. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of going in a, in a nasty direction. Alcohol uh, drinking is up. Uh, the amount people are consuming is up. The frequency, so people are drinking every day when they didn't before. Yeah, I would never normally drink during the week. And yeah, I'm, yeah. Three or four times over the last few weeks, I've sort of had a drink on a Tuesday night, which is just like, that's just unheard of for us. Yeah. When we do that. But. Look, and look, I'm the same. I mean, on my rule around drinking is um, I do it for enjoyment. So if I've had a bad day, if I've had a shitty day, I'm not going to come home and, and crack a bottle of wine or, or crack that's a That's a nice rule, isn't it? Look, yeah, it's... It, it, it's kind of what it's meant for in my book. You know what I mean? This is for connecting with people. Someone's coming for dinner or we're going out for dinner or, you know, you're going to catch up with a couple of the lads on a Friday afternoon, just at the end of the week. Um, to, in my mind, that's what it's for. If you're coming home from a bad day at work and cracking a bottle just to sort of feel a bit better about yourself, that's probably the wrong time to do it. Yep. That, that's, look, that's in my book. And I always, I'm always fearful of sounding like I'm preaching because alcohol is such a, a strong um, uh, sort of leveler in society uh, and, and it forms part of the Australian and indeed the Irish psyche as well. Mm. There's a, a thing we talked about about the dopamine system before. Remember, mm. dopamine's that thing that keeps you focused on on where you should be going and all of that sort of stuff. So if you're focused on yeah. um, one of yeah. One of the issues you might be able to enlighten me a little bit is what happens with the likes of things like meth and cocaine and stuff where I've, I've heard of people sort of cooking the, their dopamine system a little bit so their system doesn't work properly and they actually get things like Parkinson's-like sim symptoms from that. Yeah, is that that's something you've seen in your experience? 
Um, prolonged use can certainly cause a whole, it can manifest itself in a whole load of different ways. Um, to talk about that, we probably would, we'd need to sort of talk about uh, how how um, addiction would be sort of viewed nowadays, the sort of model that people would take. Years ago, the, the idea was that it was a brain disorder, which was a bit sort of reductionist and it, and it doesn't explain everything and you can't just say it's a brain disorder or it's a brain disease. It's more than that. And, and what people talk about now is a, a model called the biopsychosocial model. I don't know if you've come Biopsychosocial. Social model, which sounds like a lazy cobbling together of three words and it kind of is but if i was to explain it what, what it basically means is for for an issue to arise it involves a complex interaction between sort of biological or genetic reasons and then psychological reasons as well uh, and and also sort of what, what they call social but that could mean cultural or environmental sort of issues as an example, if you went to a GP today and you had high blood pressure, it'd be a, a pretty uh, poor doctor who wouldn't start to look at your family history. So, you know, is there, is there any other uh, members of your yep. family that might have high blood pressure or heart disease, etc.? So there's your genetic, there's your biological sort of examination. They'd look at your psychological setup. So in other words, uh, are you stressed at work? Do you worry a lot? Um, is stress or anxiety something that's kind of prevalent for you? And then they'd look at cultural or environmental reasons and they would look at uh, things like, you know, what's your exercise like? What's your diet like? You know, um, some Pacific Islanders do have issues with high blood pressure and it comes down to the sort of Western diet that they haven't evolved with. As an, just as an example. So a GP would then look at each of those areas and probably recommend that you make some changes to your diet and you do some exercise and you, you, um, you know, check your stress levels and, and try meditating, etc. before they would apply a medication that would just lower your blood pressure. So that's the biopsychosocial model. It's been around a good number of years, but it's becoming more and more prevalent because things it's not just something like uh, substance abuse or something like um, high blood pressure. I mean, talk about things like uh, asthma, um, hypertension. Uh, well, what that is high blood pressure. Um, it's sort of chronic issues like that. Uh, even obesity can obesity, have, diabetes, all of yeah, those diabetes can all have ramifications outside of just the presenting issue itself, if you like. Yeah. As so, things like mental health issues and stuff like that as well. It's very absolutely. easy to go to the doctor and they they can sometimes just go straight to the medication without actually you know investigating those three things that you were talking about there. The yeah, you know the the biological part of it, the the psychological part of it, and the physiological. Yeah, and, and I guess a lot of the time the medical uh, fraternity is challenging because we all just want a pill. We want the easy solution, you know. So, so if you go to a doctor and you say you're looking, you know, you've got these issues and, and the doctor tells you to slow down and change your diet and change your exercise and you're just thinking, just give me a pill, will you? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so they're sort of challenged trying to, to change the mindset around it. But I think it's, it's changing now. Yeah. So when we talk about substance abuse, we talk about addictions. Generally, we, we do talk about that biopsychosocial model. So it's not enough to say it's a brain disease that causes this. We really we start looking at genetic reasons. Is there is there a, a biological sort of history of substance abuse? 
in the family. And generally, you'll find that it is for maybe half. You know, it's about genetically, it's about 50% responsibility. And then right. then psychosocial, um, psychological or cultural issues would probably account for the other half a percent. And there's a lot of that that can come down to things like adverse childhood experiences and stuff, can't it, as well? Absolutely. When you're talking about the cultural environment and indeed the psychological sort of elements to it, uh, yes. Can you just explain what that is, what a, an adverse childhood experience is? Yeah, okay. So so um, an adverse uh, childhood experience uh, is basically the experiences that's, that, a childhood ha- that a child has when they're forming in the early years of their lives that will have ramifications later on in life. And there's generally uh, about, uh, there's generally about 10 different sort of experiences that we can sort of categorize most things into. What are the top, yeah, the most common two or three? Well, it splits into sort of personal and family ones. So the personal ones would be experiencing physical abuse, maybe sexual abuse, verbal abuse to a degree, which would sort of fall under emotional neglect. Um, so, so there's a abuse and there's neglect. It's a bit like domestic violence, you know. Um, it's I guess both abuse. of them are, are making the, the kid not feel safe. Absolutely, that's what it's. Yeah, that's so what the child doesn't about. feel safe. Yeah, and and then when we talk about family experiences, it could be a parent with an alcohol issue, or a, a mother who's experiencing domestic violence or domestic abuse at home, or a family member that's maybe in jail or has mental health issues, or a parent that just disappears and leaves. You know, that can, these are all things that can make a child feel unsafe and, and they don't all directly affect the child in terms of making them, putting them in a place of uh, uh, being unsafe. But as lo- if the child perceives that they're unsafe, well, then they are. You know, it's, it's, it's really, that's what it comes down to. Um, and and if, if a child has more than one of these and generally they do. It's very, very rare that a child would experience ongoing physical abuse that wouldn't also be sort of physically neglectful or, or violently or uh, verbally abused, etc. Or in a family where there's one of the parents is a victim of violence or, or uh, has a substance abuse. So yeah, I used you to have this idea. Cluster. With, I used to have this idea with people that, that blamed the issues that they've got going on. And blame's probably mm. not the right word, but that use the things that happened as a child yep. to sort of explain why they're doing things that they don't want to do and particularly things like addiction and stuff like yep. that. Yeah. And I you always used to have this idea as, you know, toughen up and just get over it. That was a long time ago. And yeah. I think a lot of people had that same deal. And I've completely changed my tune on yep. that in recent yep. months. Um, unfortunately I've come from a place of, you know, privileged, loving yes. family. You know, I've got three sisters that who looked after me. I got a mum and dad who are, are still together, you know, yep. 50, 50 odd years on. Yeah. And I didn't have any of those adverse child effects. And mm. so it's really, really bad to stand there from a place of, you know, great luck and great privilege yeah, yeah, and yeah. sort of cast judgment on someone that has been through that and their brain's been wired in a way that they really didn't have any desire to and didn't have any control over at the time. That's right, um, and look, I, I exactly the same background as you, um, but it but it doesn't um, it, it doesn't even need to be uh, an unsafe place. It just needs to be uh, a scenario where the child feels unsafe. 
Uh, and look, a great example of that would be mum is walking with a young child in the shopping centre and they bump into another mum. And the child immediately goes and runs behind mummy's legs and because they feel unsafe. Now, if they're ridiculed for that and dragged out to go and say hello to the other person, they're going to feel unsafe. Um, at no point is that child in any danger, but they have a perception that they're feeling unsafe and they're not supported around that. That can be enough. If that happens often enough, that can be enough to make that child grow up uh, being shy and, and finding it difficult to say hello to new people. You know? And, and the then you extrapolate that off and you get yeah. the, like agoraphobia and yeah. you know, take and, it right and, up the other end. Ex- well, that's exactly right. Or, you know, another example would be uh, a, a boy or girl playing with their toys. Daddy comes home from work. Daddy's... Uh, you know, come and play with me, Daddy, and see my new toys or whatever it is. Dad's really busy. Yeah, 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 I'll be there in a minute. And if that happens on an ongoing basis, that child learns that they are wrong for wanting to seek out playtime with Daddy. So how do they suit themselves? They play with their toys. How does that manifest itself when, you know, 20 years or 20-something years later when they're in a relationship and they find that, developing some sort of closeness or connection with somebody else just is inherently wrong in their head and they sabotage their relationship. So how many people have we met? I've met plenty in my my time that just sort of say, I can't meet the right person. But you think, yeah, you probably have, but you you can't commit to uh, relationships. You can't commit to connection because you somewhere along your... Well, you've, you've learned that it's the wrong thing. You know, to be needy is wrong. Yeah. And then throw into that all the Hollywood movies who who laugh at what's wrong with you that did, you didn't get a hug from daddy. Yeah, that's actually a genuine thing. Yeah, you know, or you hear it in court cases when you hear you know the in in summing up the defense lawyer sort of explaining how the the perpetrator had uh, had a very challenged childhood. It's a genuine reason. It's a genuine thing. It doesn't explain everything, but we need to take it into account. But unfortunately, it's been sort of poo-pooed and ridiculed by the toughen up brigade over the years. Yeah, and I, I must admit, I've been part of that brigade brigade in the past. I, look, I think we um, all probably. I don't have. think I'm on my own either. Yeah, well, and it, maybe it's white privilege, as you say. You know, maybe maybe we have, and and other people haven't. You know. So if you if you had a loved one or someone who was mm. struggling with addiction, yeah, you know. In a perfect world, what would you what would you like to yeah. see them have and get from the people around them? Uh, well, we'd start probably with what they shouldn't get, and and the whole and, and in fact, um, television uh, production companies have made programs around interventions, uh, which make great viewing, but are absolutely worse. They are horrific. Awful, awful. Great viewing because you're looking at somebody else who's worse off than you are going through a really tough time. And and they, they, they sort of edit the program so that it looks like the person is a complete uh, no-hope case and then the family just gives them this tough love and they come good. And the reality is that's not how it works at all. So sort of um, one of the things in Stress Teflon is that you need the safety of a tribe. And so that... Exactly. We're back animals. We have to. Yeah. So that idea that, okay, you've been, you're doing these things that are wrong and you said you wouldn't and you still have, so we're going to kick you out of our tribe. Mm, mm. But that sounds like that's probably the worst thing you could possibly do is with someone with addiction. I, look, I think it is. Um, but the problem with it is 
what's the alternative? What do you do? You know, and, and mm. it's a bit like um, it's a bit like the, the stigma around mental health. Sometimes we just have to say to somebody, look, I see you're struggling and I see it's uh, we want to support you and you want to be by your side and we want to help you all we can. But um, un, until there's some sort of acknowledgement that we can break down this, the stigma that people feel around mental health, we're not going to bridge that gap too readily it's very very hard to do so when when it's somebody will say who has um, burnt all their bridges with their family and you know they've promised that they'll get better and they haven't or they've lied and they've stolen and all of that there's there's a million stories like that around the place really all we can do is be there for somebody but we can put very strict guidelines and um there's no boundaries with that Boundaries, rule. I was going to say rules. Boundaries is a better word. Yeah. So in other words, look, you, you you can stay living in this house, but I'm not going to fund your drugs. I'm not going to lie for you. I'm not going to buy drugs for you. I'm not going to break the law for you. I, you know, we will feed you and we will house you and we will do everything we can to support you in in getting better. That's way better than saying if you don't get through. Um, a rehab this time then that's it you're out we're done you know what i mean so um which is and, and i've heard an awful lot of that I've, you know i've worked with people who are in a, in a rehab program or they're in aa or na or something like that and their family have said if you slip up one more time that's it you're done that's not really conducive to supporting somebody to get better you yeah know? and when when we talk about the dis, the dopamine system which is the the reward system in that sort of impulse part of the brain taking over and 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 hijacking the brain if you like to seek keep seeking out those sorts of um behaviors that we that we've come to rely on it's a bit unfair to say to somebody if that system kicks in the fight or flight response kicks in and, and makes you do something outside of your own awareness uh, we're going to blame you entirely for it. So that's a little bit wrong, isn't it? Mm. You know? Yeah, it is um, hard when you've got something that's that's hardwired in there now. Yeah, yeah, that's you've exactly got to try it. And change that. I, th- yeah. I think So we need the- to reset. We need to reset people's perception and we re- need to reset people's mindset around that. And that means Almost. changing the language around it, I think, you know. So there is some issues that once addiction gets really bad is that the person then almost gets an identity that's yeah, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, I'm a this. And that yep. actually becomes part of their de- their identity. And, you know, that's got to be a ridiculously hard thing to try and shift. You know, you can do all the different systems you like and change the environment and stuff, but you've got an identity that's saying, I'm this person that I don't want to be. Yeah. That's got to be really hard. Look, it, that is really difficult. And in actual fact, usually you'll find that people jump to that conclusion um, when they don't necessarily know the person they're talking about intimately or know them on a sort of a personal level. So so by that I mean um, uh, we can all jump to conclusions around the behavior of somebody because they're homeless or because they've got an alcohol problem or a gambling problem or something like that. It's not until you know the person that you realize that it's actually just one part of a thousand different parts of a person's makeup. Uh, and we can look beyond the actual addiction process itself. That's not helped right now um, by um, some people can take their sort of 
if you like, I'm, and I'm going to do inverted commas here, a diagnosis of addiction, because uh, I, I, I hate the idea that we diagnose somebody because that just, that does pigeonhole them. But um, if people, some people themselves take it and say, okay, yeah, I'm an addict, and, uh, and I'll proudly wear that because it explains to me the process I've been through, where I've come from or where I'm at. Uh, and I don't know that necessarily uh, in the long run that that's helpful, but it's certainly in the short to medium term, it, it certainly helps somebody in their recovery journey because it gives them some level of identity with other people on the same journey. But, but I, but I, yeah, but, but to me, it's a bit like, uh, it's a bit like stigmatizing somebody. It just makes them less than whole because it isn't their full story. It's not, it's not all they are. It's, it's a part of, it's something that they're going through, but it's not who they are. Yeah. We can very quickly. So if you do have a loved one that, that is struggling with addiction, just try yeah. to make sure they know that there are other parts of them that are absolutely wonderful. And yeah, this yeah. is a struggle that you're going through. Uh, I had a, yeah. a a family friend who was had a gambling addiction, and, mm. and unfortunately, she ended up taking her own life, and it was yeah. horrendous on everyone around her. Yeah, yeah. And she had that supportive family and stuff, but she still couldn't break through the the you know the issue that this is what I have to do and this is the ABCs of me and mm. that's a really hard thing to try and break and sort of I guess getting rid of some of those stigmas you're talking about and yep. letting people be more open with talking about it is certainly going to help. Well, I, I think it has to. I think we have to break down that stigma and we have to get in front of it and normalize the conversations. Um, I, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about your friend and, and I'm sure her family are supportive, but somewhere along the way she has or she did take on the mantle that this is incredibly shaming and it's too hard now that I can't get past it. You know, uh, can you imagine if, if we were able to look at it in the same way as somebody having, as you said earlier on diabetes or high blood pressure, you know, and and it's, it's just a part of who I am and it's a chronic condition that I'm working on. Um, but if we had to suicide because we had diabetes, Jesus, you know, yeah, it's. Um, um, I guess they're, they're very similar things too, in, in different ways, but they end up with the same effect. Like a lot of people that are severely overweight and stuff blame themselves for, oh, I'm, I'm weak, I can't do what I need to do. And, you know, there's so many, well, this is a whole other rabbit hole we won't go down, but there's yeah. a whole lot of things about what we've been told about nutrition and health and stuff that we've found out now is just completely wrong. And we've had 20 and 30 years, people have had the whole <laughs> life. Of, yeah. of thinking, you know, I've got to eat food pyramids and things like that. And, and like yeah, that. low, low fat food. <laughs> yeah, all of that sort of Substituted stuff. Substituted with sugar and, and overnight, you know, that was completely changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we do have to look at uh, people's view of themselves because generally when they, when they do have that sort of shaming view of themselves, it's as a result of their experiences of other people's perceptions of them. Yes. That stigma. That's it in a nutshell, you know. Uh, I guess when you are, you know, if you're in the groups of things like anxiety and depression and you've been mm. through a lot of trauma and things like that, then it's it's much harder to see the, you know, the bright side of things. I, Sorry, I have yeah. this, I have, I have this, I love cavemen, as you probably, yep. um, I love talking about how, how things happen. And a caveman could walk out of their cave, look to the right and see a rainbow and go, wow, that's awesome. That rainbow is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. If that same caveman walked out and looked to his left and saw a tiger, you're going to take more notice of that tiger. 
Yeah. Uh, not yeah, seeing yeah. a rainbow, you're not going to die. Yeah. I mean, but not seeing the tiger, mm. you know, you're not contributing to evolution anymore. And, and that negative bias is something that, that people just, is a really, really difficult thing to get over. It's hardwired into us through thousands of years of evolution. Absolutely, and and a hard word in from a safety uh, perspective. I mean, that's the interesting thing about our whole fight or flight response is, um, you know, we haven't evolved as, as quickly as technology has. And in reality, so we're still afraid of things that will kill us like snakes and spiders, heights, stuff like that. But, but in actual fact, what we should be uh, automatically afraid of is things like guns and cars and, you know, electricity, stuff that is far more likely to kill us. But we've never evolved to be afraid of those things, mm-hmm. you know. So that, and that speaks to what you're sort of talking about as well. So the, the negative biases are hardwired into us um, and, and they come from a, a place of safety and survival, you know. Yeah, so I guess, I guess so going back to that question, if, if you had someone who... You know, one of your loved ones that's struggling with addiction, trying to find the things about them that are positive, trying to find the things about them that are giving them purpose and, you know, make, making them, the world needs to be a better place because you're in it. Yes. And if, if you're struggling with addiction, it's very hard to then find, well, the world is, is a, better world, a better place because I'm in it. And they need to look around because if they, the more they look, you know, you're going to find those things. I helped someone. I did something for someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, and things can certainly help. And meaning and purpose uh, falls um, into this conversation. I've done a, a ton of work with veterans and emergency service workers who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder and and substance abuse. That's and that's how I ended up in that sort of sphere. Um, and and a lot of the time, like as a, a prime example of you saying we need to belong to a tribe, if you look at veterans who were part of an elite force, no matter what force in in the defence forces they were in, you you were a valued member of a community, and uh, you you for on, on whatever circumstances you you were either in a an engagement directly in engagement or or you were just part of a, a part of a, an army or a force uh, that experienced combat, we'll say, and even some who didn't. Um, but you, you those, those adverse things like combat certainly do bring those those tribes and those teams together, don't they? The Very much. Yeah. yeah. You, this this is. I mean, that's the ultimate tribe. You know, uh, here we are. We're trained to do exactly what our fight or flight response tells us not to do and that's go charging into danger but we're going into all of this together and then uh you come back out of that and then you you leave or you're discharged from the defense forces and now suddenly you're you're nobody mm-hmm. so you had meaning and purpose and you had a tribe and a community of people who looked out for each other no you have none of those things and and you don't even have meaning and purpose to sort of get you through the day uh that's you know the ramifications of that are absolutely huge. Yeah, I had a retired That's colonel huge. come on come on the reset podcast a couple of episodes ago. Oh, very um, good, yeah. And my yeah. Brian, who's a retired colonel, and he, yeah. um, yeah, amazing ideas on on things like leadership and stuff like that, which is he was fantastic at, and he yeah. deliberately he'd seen that so often that mm. he deliberately sought out where am I going to find my tribe, where am I going to find. The, the place where I belong and he he did that on purpose and came out really well and I that's great I guess that's one of the hard things about people who are struggling with addiction is to is to find where their tribe is and and where their purpose is and yeah um, and in fact 
uh, we were speaking before about Johan Hari, uh, who's written a couple of really, really good books. He's a journalist in the UK, but he wrote a book called Chasing the Screen. And um, it's, I would go on record saying that nobody has done more than Johan Hari to, to normalize the conversation around addiction and to reduce the stigma around addiction uh, than he has done uh, with that book, a hugely successful what, book. What sort of things does he, does he talk about? What are well, the well interestingly, the, his main point in, in the whole book, I have a slight issue with, and that's maybe because I'm just too close to the problem, but, but uh, his, the overarching comment he makes in the book is that the opposition, or sorry, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And and what he, what he was trying to say, albeit I think a little bit clumsy or, or sort of making too much of a leap, is what he's saying is our way of treating people in addiction by ostracizing them and pushing them to the fringes of society is the wrong approach. And really what we need to do is say, like we've just been talking about, you know, we're here for you under certain conditions. Uh, we will do all we can to support you in your recovery process, etc. I think Johan Harry did a really fabulous TED talk. Yes, he did, and the uh, TED he's talk young was fella, actually he? he's yeah, probably he in is. his thirties. Yeah, and yeah, he had a brother. The, yeah, I've, I've seen his TED talk. It's, it's yeah. amazing. And it's, well, the it's TED talk about... was was based on that book that he wrote. Right now, you know, um, I'll put the it, links of that in the show notes because it's an absolute great TED talk. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, but but he says the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. Um, Isolation can be a consequence of addiction, and 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 the you're opposite. Enough bridges, you're going to be by yourself. Yeah, and, and and the opposite of that would be connection. But but I think to say the opposite of of addiction is connection is is just a bit too sort of long a bow to pull. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because people I can get it part. It's part of what you need to. Yeah, but 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 there are people in addiction who who uh, are not isolated. You know what I mean? Um, and people who are recovering are not isolated, and that's where the connection he's talking about. So we're talking mm. about things like AA and NA, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, etc. Well, you you talk about AA. They yeah, you know they have a mentor, so they get given at least one person who they can call no matter what. The sponsor, they, yep. The sponsor, yeah. They go yep. to they go to the groups. They they go back and make amends for things that they've done in the yeah. past. And yeah, I know it's not the most scientific of um, institutions, but the, yeah. you know, the amount of people that they've helped is a, is fairly amazing. It's huge. Look, it's huge. And, and you will have uh, proponents who will say that it doesn't work. And, and just like everything else, of course, uh, you know, not everything is going to work for everybody, but there was a, there was a time in history when it was all we had. And, uh, and, and it was faith-based. And again, there was a time in history when that's all we had as well. Um, but this, what it has done, and it, it, it provides a tribe, exactly like you're talking about. Here is a group of like-minded people going through the same struggles as me, and, and I can find support and, and solace from them. Mm. Uh, now, there are some people who can become addicted to the Alcoholics Anonymous process and, and can be 40 years going to meetings three times a week still just to try and stay sober. Uh, a lot of the time they haven't maybe done the best work on themselves that they could do, but also it's, uh, it's a cost-effective way for somebody who has lost everything. Um, it's a community and it's a tribe. Unfortunately, 
as the name suggests, it's anonymous, which speaks to shame and stigma that people feel. And, and yeah, badly, in, yeah. That. Sadly, in society, that's still the case. You know, there's no surnames used there. There's no second names. Nobody talks about anybody outside of the, or they're not supposed to talk about anybody outside of the program, unless it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, for their. I goal. guess if there was no stigma, you wouldn't need to be anonymous. Pretty much, and I'd love to get to the point where we don't need to be. You know, and and as much as we know now uh, around uh, the the mechanics of addiction and how it overtakes the brain and all of the other processes that are involved in a perfect world, there wouldn't be any stigma attached to it, but unfortunately there still is, you know? Um, but, but when you talk about tribes and communities, um, the, they have a, a massive role to play. Uh, and, but they're formed part of somebody's kind of recovery that it's not necessarily all of it. You know? Yeah. But um, yeah, having that, you know, those those things that we talk about in stress Teflon, the safety of a tribe, the tribe, tribe the purpose, and on a self awareness. I guess yeah, you'd probably use those three as as a fairly good basis to to start whatever you need to do to to address your addiction. Well, it actually embodies it, yeah. So so more than more so than even using it, and and that whole uh, the AA process. They talk about twelve steps. Uh, in the process and and towards the the back end of it part of your process is actually supporting others who are starting on their journey and you become a sponsor uh, and and you help to others to recover that's meaning and purpose right there yeah it is isn't it yeah i mean there's great research in in, uh, just a few short years ago that looked at um the quality of life for people who were in recovery from from addiction and um, they measured, uh, they could do this happiness scales and, and quality of life scales, they're sort of psychometric tests that you can do from a psycho- psychological perspective. But they measured people who were in recovery, and then they measured people who had never even had uh, any kind of a, a substance or process uh, addiction uh, in their lives. And they found that people who were in in their third year of recovery from uh, an addiction were 20% happier than people who'd never even had an issue in the first place. And what, yeah, and what that spoke to is, is yeah, no, that's a fact. Yeah, 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 Yeah. 20% happier. And what that speaks to is they've got a tribe, you know, they're they're in recovery, they've got meaning and purpose, um, they've got, as I said, the tribe you're talking about, and, and they've learned what's actually important in life. I think and there's it, also an isn't. element of that. that you know, we, I talk about pride in, in Stress Teflon, and mm. the pride of, like, I had this big hurdle in front of me that was a real problem, and I've three years down the track, I've gotten over it. And, yeah. And, know, and, there's and, some well-being in that too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And and I've come to learn that it isn't about the foreign holidays or the new car or the big TV. I've found that it's about connecting with people, um, having shared a, a, a harrowing journey with people, hopefully recovering my relationships with family and friends. And if not, I've developed new ones. But also, and, and I'm now here helping others who are going through the same trials and tribulations I did. Yeah. That's what's important in life, the tribe meaning and yeah. purpose belonging and and having value there you go well if yeah. you, 
I think it, that's probably a great way to end because if you are struggling yeah. with addiction, just just one last thing. If you are struggling yep. with addiction, um, where would be the best places to go? What um, like Lifeline, Beyond Blue? Oh right, okay. Um, would you would you recommend people to to depend, go and talk to? Depending on where you're at in your journey and where you're prepared to sort of talk about, the the very first place I would suggest to anybody to seek out some help would be um, the Alcohol and Drug Information Service, ADIS. Okay. Uh, I'll flick you on the number. I don't have it off the top of my That's head. Right. I can get that and pop that yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, and they are fantastic. At, uh, they even can counsel you there and then. Um, just to sort of stabilize you. Um, they can pr- give you information on where the best services are uh, in your area to approach. You can look, you can approach your GP. They'll always have that sort of information as well. If you're feeling overwhelmed, then I would say Lifeline is a great number to ring. Um, jump online and find out where the nearest AA or NA meeting is, you know. Um, and, and these are all things if you haven't actually turned to your family first. Yes. Yeah, um, turn having, it to your family. Having that friend, at, yeah. at least one friend that you can turn to that isn't going to judge you if you if you portray yourself in a less than perfect light. Yeah, is a very important thing. Also, being that friend for someone else, I think, is a very important thing. That to be that person that you know so, that your friends can come to yeah. if they're having an issue, I think, is a very important thing as well. And that personifies tribe as far as I'm concerned, you know, the people who you can approach uh, without judgment or they may have some level of judgment, but still will embrace you as being a member of their tribe or family, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, sometimes uh, these the, the addiction process is so severe and strong and long lasting that people have burned all of those, you know. Um, but the thing is, uh, we're a first world country, help is available um, and reaching out is the first thing people have to do yeah. but but um yeah there is there is help there um you've got to find your tribe it's, it's find the most your tribe. thing absolutely find your tribe mark butler yeah. thank you very much for coming on the reset podcast I'm thanks glad very much Luke. i really enjoyed that thank you cheers mate cheers Bye.